Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Lydia Foreman. I'm the pastoral intern here on the north side. And as Tripp mentioned earlier, um, it's been such a joy to see some of your masked faces at communion over the past few weeks. Um, uh, last week, my family uh, came to, to communion for the first time. And so uh, my oldest son, when he found out that we were driving uh, all the way up to Rome from Midtown to take communion, he said, all this way for some bread and some wine? And um, we corrected him. We're like, it is the, the body and blood of our Lord. But yes, we're going to get on 400 and make the trek up to Rome for communion. So I hope that you guys have found it uh, more meaningful than at least my older son um, Today, we're going to look both at the, good, the story of the Good Samaritan, which we read earlier in the Gospel of Luke, but we're also going to be looking at chapter seven in Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We're wrapping up the study of that book across all three parishes. And in this chapter, uh, chapter seven, Scazzaro talks about what it looks like to grow into an emotionally mature adult. And so the focus of this chapter is really how to love well. Uh, so to be a community of emotionally healthy and mature adults is really just the greatest gift we can give our community, right? Um, to give our world. And when we can't do this, when we can't really love well, uh, I mean, when our, our relationships in the church and our relationships with each other don't really look any different than the world around us, like, what are we doing? Like, what are we about as Christians? So loving well is really simply the goal of the Christian life. Um, I found this chapter not only to be just wonderfully practical, but to be really timely. Uh, our world couldn't be more divided right now, as you know, culturally, politically, ideologically. It just seems like every conversation that we enter into is just fraught with tension and, and dissension. Uh, there's just potential conflict for like every turn. Uh, if you're familiar with the, the Enneagram, which of course has gained a lot of popularity, especially in the last couple of years, um, I've dived into it myself uh, and figured out what type you are. It's a personality typing system. Um, so then you're probably familiar with the different types that there's nine personality types. Uh, and the ninth type is known as the peacemaker. And I'm not a type nine, but I have several type nine friends. I'm a type seven. Uh, but I've always sort of taken issue with the type nine's name of peacemaker because it sort of implies that like they're going to be particularly good at conflict resolution. And at least the nines I know, as wonderful as they are, that's not really what they're good at. And that's really not what the type nine is about. It's really about them wanting the peace around them to be preserved as much as possible. And I think they would probably agree with that, that uh, definition as well. But I was thinking the other day that, man, like just thinking about my nine friends, like it must really be hard to be a nine right now because there is quite literally nowhere you can go to escape conflict at the moment. Um, but the fact of the matter is like most of us don't enjoy conflict, right? Like it's not something that we typically enjoy or pursue, uh, but we're gonna encounter it, right? Uh, just in this life, it's impossible to avoid. And as psychiatrist M. Scott Peck says, uh, we're born into this world as narcissists. And part of the spiritual journey is learning how to grow out of that narcissism, right? Like, so if you're the center of your universe and I'm the center of my universe, at some point, our wills are going to collide. It's just inevitable. And we all know this to be true, right? Like I see this with my boys on the daily. Um, and you know, as we're in this house together, seemingly every hour of the day, it's just conflict is happening constantly. Uh, my husband and I were joking uh, 
it just, it feels like our day is just filled with like settling disputes, just one after another. And we were joking about how like, it would have been nice if we majored in something like international relations or international affairs in college because we could both use like some skills in arbitration right now uh, that would come in handy. But it doesn't disappear, conflict, right, when we become adults. Most of us actually don't get any better at dealing with conflict, but we do get better skilled at avoiding it. Uh, many of us, especially Christians, have misunderstood what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, a lot of us have taken to mean, uh, that means to be appeasers, to avoid conflict at all costs, make sure that no one gets upset. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Jesus disrupted the false peace around him all the time. Uh, the example of this, of course, the famous example is of Jesus overturning the tables in the temple, right? Uh, and it's kind of this like exciting moment, like, you know, we're all familiar with it. It's, it's this great example of Jesus confronting corruption head on, you know? Uh, but for most of us, those, those table flipping moments aren't really common to our, our day-to-day experience, right? Uh, it's much smaller scale, if we're honest. But even in those smaller moments of conflict, I think we find that Jesus wasn't afraid to speak the truth, even when it risked relationships with his friends, his disciples. So the passage that came to mind when I was thinking about this, what does you know, day-to-day conflict look like with, with Jesus? Uh, the passage in Matthew 16, uh, when he is talking about his, the suffering that he's going to undergo and his death and his resurrection, he's breaking the news of what his mission on earth, why he came to earth. Um, he's telling this to his disciples. And so Peter, no doubt out of fear and anxiety and a deep love for Jesus, what does he say? He says, you know, no way, like, Lord, this can't happen. He rebukes Jesus's main mission on earth. And then Jesus, of course, responds, well, okay, I know Peter probably didn't mean to say that. I know his heart's in the right place, and it would be really awkward of me to, like, bring anything up right now and, like, call him out in front of everyone. I don't want to ruin the, like, no, of course that's not what Jesus says. We all know that Jesus kind of, like, startlingly says, get behind me, Satan. Like, it seems almost rude. He says, you're a stumbling block for me. You're setting your, your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Uh, He knew that the mature, the loving thing to do right then and there was to speak the truth, uh, even if it meant having an uncomfortable uncomfortable moment with Peter. Uh, He knows that true peace will never be achieved by sweeping things under the rug. And so I think these small moments of conflict, um, these are much more common to our everyday experience, and yet most of us lack the necessary skills to embrace conflict in a way that's both loving and in pursuit of true peace. Last week, uh, Tripp talked about how none of us stumble uh, accidentally into transformation. And I think the same thing goes for learning how to love well. Um, I think we're tempted to think because it's love and we can just sort of like feel it out, right? Love is a feeling, it just kind of comes naturally, right? Uh, but that's that's actually not true. And as Cazero points out, I think quite Uh, pointedly in this chapter, he says, we underestimate the depth of our bad habits and what is needed to sustain the long-term Christ-like change in our relationships. So I think one of the first steps that we have to uh, take is this shift in our perception of how we perceive our others, I mean, perceive ourselves in relation to others. So in this chapter, 
Scazzaro references uh, the Jewish theologian uh, Martin Buber, not Justin Bieber, but Buber. And his, uh, what he has are these concepts of healthy and unhealthy relationships. Uh, he refers to them, the unhealthy version, as the I-it relationship or I-it relationship. And meaning it's when I view other people in relation to myself as they, they are objects. I objectify people. I think of them in terms of how they, they fit into my world, uh, how they meet my needs first and, and foremost. And this is the way I think our sinful nature is automatically set up to, to view people. Uh, when I was in college, this is where I first heard about this concept because uh, this is a kind of a famous book, but uh, the first time I heard about it was when I was in college and I shared a house uh, in Athens, Georgia with eight other women. So conflict was definitely inevitable for us. And uh, I remember at one point in one of the arguments that we were having, no doubt about who left dirty dishes in the sink that week, uh, someone must have been assigned Boober in a philosophy or religion class because they took that moment to invoke him and say, uh, you're so I-itting me right now. Uh, and I, I thought it was, you know, it was pretty funny. But, you know, what they meant was they were being treated like an object, right? They weren't being valued as a human. And, and so the opposite of that, he says, the healthy version is what he calls the I-vow relationship. And it's, it's when you, you first and foremost view people as images of God. Uh, you think about their value and their worth first and foremost, not in terms of what they can deliver to you. Uh, whenever humans demonstrate that I-vow relationship, he says they're reflecting the ultimate I-vow relationship, which is that between God and humans. And this is what Jesus was so good at modeling for us, right? He never worried about speaking the truth um, in every moment because he, he knew two things. He was two things. First, he was grounded in who he was as the beloved son of God, his identity was sure. And he also saw the people around him as the images of the father. His every interaction was marked by genuine love and compassion for people, which is why not even those who were beneath society's notice were ever insignificant to Jesus. They were never simply objects to him. So turning back to the story in Luke's gospel about the Good Samaritan, the lawyer, meaning an expert in the law, of, the law of Torah and the law of Moses, he tries to trip Jesus up when he says, uh, you know, concerning how to inherit eternal life. He says, if we're inherit, to inherit eternal life, we must love our neighbor. But then who is my neighbor is his next question. And it's, it's a quibble question, right? Like he's, he's asking, where's the line? Because he knows that there's plenty of people in his life that he's actually not treating as a neighbor. He's not loving. And there's plenty of people that he has no intention of doing, of loving or treating as a neighbor. In other words, he's only viewing his relationships with the people around him in this I-it sort of way. And so Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. And when Jesus told this parable, he knew that a Samaritan, the hero of the story, was the last person that this lawyer, this expert in the law would ever view as good. They would never put this adjective in front of that word because they were ethnic and religious enemies. Uh, to someone like this lawyer, a Samaritan could not be on the more opposite end of the ideological religious spectrum the Samaritans thought that the law that Jews had received was corrupt, that they were the true keepers of the law. That's where their name comes from, Shemar, to keep. Uh, they opposed the temple in Jerusalem. They worshiped on an entirely different mountain. It, it just wasn't that these two people just like didn't get along. Like they thought the other 
person was dead wrong in their beliefs. They were heretics. And yet, it is unquestionable who the hero of the story was in the story that Jesus tells. And at the end, Jesus rephrases the lawyer's question and makes this shift in perspective. He changes the lawyer's I, it question, who is my neighbor, to I, thou language, who acted as a neighbor to the man. The lawyer's question asked, how do neighbors fit into my world? And Jesus' question asks, how do you fit into the world of others? So who saw this person lying on the side of the road in terms, not in terms of their goals or their lives or as an inconvenience to their plans for the day, but as an image of God himself? And it's not that the Levite or the priest didn't have valid reasons for, you know, uh, casting a wide berth around him like they did. They, avoid, they had valid reasons for doing so, uh, just as the lawyer would have had very valid reasons for disagreeing with the Samaritan on theological grounds. He would have. But I think this is where our understanding for today comes in. So when it comes to the conflict with, the, with those around us, our friends, our family, our colleagues, and especially today when it seems like the stakes are high and conflict is inevitable, we have to fight that urge to this IET tendency to cut people off, right? Uh, I've been reading the book uh, Wide Awake, written by a pastor in Chicago named Daniel Hill, who works in racial reconciliation. And he notes this tendency, which I'm sure, you know, you've observed maybe in your own life, but definitely if you're on social media, you've definitely seen it. Uh, but this tendency that once we start to become awake to the injustices around us, we start to feel this temptation to distance ourselves with those who don't, whose values don't align with ours. Uh, we don't want to be implicated in their badness, so to speak. And so we excommunicate people from our relationship. We unfriend them, etc. And we even feel self-righteous about doing so, actually. But, and I, I think Hill notes this in the book and does it, uh, you know, it's well noted that he does. This isn't a courageous act at all. He says, one of the easiest actions we can take is to turn our back on someone who doesn't agree with us. It's easy to go to the self-righteous place and tune them out. But when this happens, everyone loses. I lose, the person I've turned out or un tuned out or unfriended loses, and the people of color lose since we fail to be genuine allies in this work. So in these coming weeks, because I know that you know, things are not gonna be changing overnight, they're not changing anytime soon, uh, I would just invite you to start using these moments of conflict as moments where you can meet the Lord. Um, as Cazero talks about in the chapter, ask the Lord to be prayerfully present with you. Ask him to receive this person as you would receive Jesus. Uh, how might Jesus wanna come to you in this person? And I, I know that this is not easy work. Um, it's going to be unpleasant at times to engage in this, but loving well just demands it. Uh, we remember this week, uh, the life of this weekend, the life of John Lewis. And we remember the life of a man who was not afraid to enter conflict, um, of getting into good, necessary trouble, as he put it. And it was also a, mar a life marked by love and compassion and forgiveness for those who persecuted him. Uh, so learning how to get better at resolving conflict, uh, how to engage in conflict better, is learning how to love well. And it's nothing less than our task as followers of Jesus.